Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're going to read verses 16 down through verse 22, and just take a look at those verses this morning. Before we read the passage and take a look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can come to your word and have time to uh, hear it read and also hear it proclaimed and think about it. We have a lot of weakness in speech and hearing and perception. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would overcome all of our weakness, that every one of us in this room might come to know you more, might be able to grow in our faith, and might more and more appreciate the great work that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to do on our behalf. So grant that we would be a changed people when we walk out of here. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, John 19 at verse 16. So he delivered, that is, Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Thus far the word of God, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening this morning, J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage, I'll refer to him and A.W. Pink throughout it a little bit. Ryle wrote, he that can read a passage like this without a deep sense of man's debt to Christ must have a very cold or a very thoughtless heart. Great must be the love of the Lord Jesus to sinners when he could voluntarily endure such sufferings for their salvation. Great must be the sinfulness of sin when such an amount of vicarious suffering was needed in order to provide redemption. We're at the crucifixion, we're at really the culmination, you could argue, coupled with the resurrection of all of redemptive history. The biggest event so far, the second coming of Christ will be arguably a bigger event. That'll be the last event, the culmination of everything. But thus far, this is the biggest event in all of redemptive history. Ever since Genesis 3.15, all of history has been trending toward this point. And we are there as John records it in John 19. I want to bring up something uh, to you as we walk through this. I don't have any outline. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage and finish by considering some things. So the first thing I want us to recall is back in verse 10 of chapter 19, Pilate said, I have authority to release you. We told Jesus, don't, you're not going to answer me. Don't you know that I have authority to release you or to deliver you over to be crucified? Now, what's fascinating about that is, uh, again, in typical John irony, Pilate claims he has authority to release Jesus, but what has Pilate been trying to do this whole time? Release him. 
Does Pilate pull that off? No, why not? Because he can't. Pilate thinks he has authority to release Jesus, but behind Pilate and above Pilate is the decree of God, is all the promises of God that stand saying, actually, Pilate, you will be the one to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. So you may think you have authority to release him, but actually you don't. If Pilate had that authority, Jesus would be off the hook. But God used the Jews. He used Caesar. He used the Jewish threats all to force Pilate to do what he actually didn't want to do. So Pilate's claim isn't true. Pilate, you don't have authority to release Jesus. In one sense you do, ultimate sense, you don't. And the fact that you delivered Jesus over to be crucified proves that you don't have that authority because you were trying to release him. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. He threw in the towel. He had had enough. They made the threat. If you don't release him, look, we're going to tell Caesar. Pilate knew he was on a short string with Caesar. And he did not want to give up his position of power, his position of authority. So he handed him over. And to this very day, we confess that's exactly what he did. The Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate wanted to get rid of Jesus. The church since Pilate's day has said, you can't get rid of him. In fact, we're enthroning what you did to him in our confession. A.W. Pink noted, and this is really helpful for me, that Pilate, the language delivered Jesus over to be crucified, is the same language used in Romans 8, that God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. So we might ask, who delivered Jesus to be crucified? God did, and Pilate did. Or God used Pilate. Because both are said in the scripture to have delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Pilate on the human level is doing it. But God on the divine level, the level of his decree, ultimately is actually the one delivering Jesus up to be crucified. This is God's plan from the very beginning. Now, we're up to the crucifixion and we're going to walk through a lot of the details of the crucifixion as we do so. Uh, I want to uh, uh, kind of come at this with a little bit of information. So it's possible to go into all the gory details of crucifixion. I don't know if you'll notice it, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and especially John. John's very terse here. He says almost nothing, just that he was crucified. There's very few of the details of Jesus' crucifixion because the gospel writers are not trying to evoke from us, as it were, a tear from our eye, a sort of emotional connection to, oh, look how much Jesus suffered in his crucifixion, and leave us untransformed, but just emotionally moved. The goal of God in his revelation of himself is that we will believe in Jesus. John makes that really clear. And that we, having believed, we will grow. So indeed, our emotions are involved. But if all the gospel writers are trying to do was get us to cry a tear for the victim Jesus, they would have written this radically differently. They would have gone into all the gory details. So I don't want to unfold the crucifixion in that way and have us be thinking that way. But at the same token, if you had mentioned the word Stauros, our English crucifixion, to anybody in the first century AD, the most gory, gruesome images would have immediately been recalled to their mind. And you would have had to have like an ostrich buried your head in the sand to not understand what John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke mean by crucifixion, because they all knew. They had seen it, they had watched it, they beheld it, they walked by it. The Romans did this on a regular basis. The Persians did this, Carthaginians did this, the Romans, they perfected it. And they used it to a T 
to advance their society and to get people to walk in line with Roman laws. So at the start, as we walk through this, the goal is not just that, oh, I feel for Jesus. The goal is, no, I believe all the more fully in Jesus and I want to become more like him and I am a willing servant of his. Behold what he did for me. So we neither idolize the physical sufferings of Christ, nor do we dismiss them as irrelevant, as some folks like to do, like Jesus was floating above the ground as he walked through this. If you had gone to Jesus and said, you know what, I don't think you're really suffering that much, he would have begged to differ. He was going through tremendous suffering, and especially when he gets on the cross under the wrath of God, that's when the ultimate suffering, hell itself, hit. But that is not to discount what he went through physically. So, Jesus was crucified. John just makes it clear twice. Delivered over to be crucified, and then he was crucified between two others, one in his right hand, one on his left. Very simple language. Now, just a few notes about crucifixion that, again, all the readers would have understood and would have had brought to their minds as they read this account. Roman citizens were largely exempt from it, except Caesar could issue decree that someone could be crucified who was a Roman citizen, but largely that had to come from Caesar or a very high power up in the Roman uh, political world. Slaves, foreigners, Jews, they were more susceptible to crucifixion, especially slaves. In fact, some accounts are given where if a master died, all the slaves that served that master could be crucified. As in slaves were viewed as less than human. You belong to somebody, you were the property of somebody. So crucifixion was considered a slave's death, largely, or the death of foreigners. Roman crucifixion was often done in public places, and the reason for this was twofold. It warned everyone of the results of committing the listed crimes, because they listed the crime that the person committed. It warned everybody, don't rebel against Rome. Don't disobey. That's pretty pretty good deterrent. So if you're a child or you're a kid or you're a young adult learning, yeah, what are the consequences of just obeying Roman law? You would learn very quickly what the consequences were because Romans tended to crucify people along highways or fairly busy roads so the general populace would be able to view what was happening and operate obediently out of fear of the law, of breaking the law, of crucifixion. And then the second reason this was done so publicly is actually to give people who know of the person's innocence an opportunity to say, hey, stop, I've got additional evidence. Don't crucify this person. This person is innocent. So it was done before public eye to actually allow other witnesses to come forward and say, look, this, you can't go forward with this. Because usually before crucifixions, oftentimes there was a trial that took place. Now, crucifixion, something else to know about it is it's a perfected form of torture. If Hitler had developed maybe the most efficient killing machine, gas chambers, crematoriums right there, burning bodies, off you go. Romans had uh, devised maybe the most perfected torture machine in the crucifixion. It was very common for those who were crucified to be on the cross for one to three days. One to three days. This is not, the fact that Jesus died early boggled everybody's mind, and we'll notice that. That's what the gospel writers record. They came, they came across him, he's dead already. Yeah, because this was typical that you'd have to break their bones 
or that they would just hang out there and be eaten by birds, etc., kind of picked apart and go through this pain for quite a while. Before anyone was crucified, there was a trial. We've seen Jesus' trial. It was not a real trial. It was a mockery of justice. He didn't really get a trial. But nonetheless, he, as the Son of God, is being crucified. He has gone through crucifixion. The person being crucified, as soon as the verdict was rendered, like Pilate, we're told in John, he delivered him over to be crucified. There's the verdict. Go do with him what you want. Now the Romans get to take him away and go through the process. The next step was scourging. Now, this is not like the beating Pilate gave him in verse 1 early on in chapter 19 and sent him out, and hopefully the Jews would have pity on him. This was the scourging that came along with crucifixion. The Romans had, uh, D.A. Carson pointed this out, I think it's very helpful. The Romans had three different punishments to administer to criminals. The lowest one was called futagatio. That's, uh, but many regard that as what took place early in chapter 19 of verse 1. It's a, it's a beating, but it's not horribly severe, and it's not for incredible crimes. Then there's flagellatio, which was a brutal flogging administered to criminals whose offenses were more serious. And then there was the dreaded verberatio, which was what accompanied capital punishments and crucifixion, and that's what Jesus would have undergone. Martin Hengel, in his book Crucifixion, wrote this, crucifixion was a punishment in which the caprice and sadism of the executioners were given full reign. So this punishment, this scourging that would have been part of Jesus' crucifixion, that's recorded in some of the other gospel accounts, uh, entailed this. The person was tied up to a post and then with a leather whip with bone fragments and metal inside of the leather, they were whipped on their back Skin would be sliced open. Some people had their kidneys exposed. And what would take place for many people, not, maybe not most, but plenty of people, is that they would die from that scourging. They wouldn't actually make it out to the crucifixion. They'd die from shock or severe blood loss. And then the person would carry their cross to the place of crucifixion after that was done. So we're told, verse 17, he went out. Right now he's going out. He's going outside the city, which, again, in John is interesting. Why is Jesus being crucified outside the city? Now, again, there's two levels to this. The Romans didn't crucify people inside towns. That was their general rule of thumb. So on one level, Jesus is just going to do what's ordinary for crucifixion. He's going outside the city of Jerusalem. He's near the city, but he's outside the walls. Okay, nobody would have thought anything of this. But as is typical with John, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know there's something bigger going on here too. Let me read a few passages to kind of tip our hat to it. Exodus 29, 14. The flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering. Leviticus 4:11. The skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, the priest shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it upon a fire of wood. Numbers 19.3, the red heifer shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered. And here's one that you're probably very familiar with, Hebrews 13.11, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What is John telling us about Jesus going out? Note to every single reader, Jesus is a sacrifice. Note to everyone who's touched on or read at all the Old Testament, Jesus is going out as is typical Roman custom, but there's more to it than that. He is a sacrifice. He's being offered up as a sacrifice. J.C. Ryle, little did the blinded Jews imagine that when they madly hounded on the Romans to crucify Jesus outside the gates, that they were unconsciously perfecting the mightiest sin offering of all. Not many of them got this. We, the reader, can stand back and marvel at this. We're told he went out, again, verse 17, bearing his own cross, which again was typical. If you survived the scourging, you would put the horizontal piece of the cross on your shoulder. You would carry this out to the place where oftentimes they had the vertical beam already in the ground. They would nail you to the horizontal cross beam. They would hoist you up and you would begin the slow process of dying by asphyxiation or shock or some other method. This is a great portrait of Exodus 22.6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And here we see centuries later, Jesus bearing the wood of his own sacrifice. Although in Isaac's day, Isaac got let off because the angel of the Lord come and said, stop. But here, when Jesus Christ goes up this hill and hangs in our place, there's no one that says stop. There's not another substitute provided. Why not? Because he's the ultimate substitute. He's the one who has to do this. I've already mentioned crucifixions were meant to deter crime, so they would do this uh, in public, but also they would do it with numerous people. So if you look at verse 18, they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now we know who should have been on that middle cross. Barabbas. Barabbas is not there. He's either a spectator now or he is long gone doing other crimes saying, I can't believe they let me off the hook for, for all my horrible crimes. But whatever the case, Jesus is now on that middle cross and it was common to crucify numerous people so that folks would learn, hey, we're not capable of just crucifying one of you. We can crucify dozens of you. We've got that capability. So it doesn't matter how big your uprising is, note to self, don't rebel against Romans. Again, on another level, there's something bigger going on here because back in Isaiah 53, 12, we're told he was numbered with the transgressors. So what would have been normal Roman custom? God, and John is recording this by the Holy Spirit, is fulfilling prophecy. Who was Jesus between? Two other people. The other gospel writers tell us they were criminals as well. Or they were criminals, not, not like Jesus. Jesus wasn't a criminal. The next thing about crucifixion is the charges against the person would be hung around their neck or sometimes posted on or near the cross that they were being hung on or whatever piece of wood they were using. And what's fascinating is in verse 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So the crime being committed was that Jesus is the King of the Jews. And everyone who walked by it would read these charges and would make a mental note of that crime. Likely thinking what? How is that a crime? What is going on here? What is John highlighting? Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus came to his own people, 
as their king, putting his kingship and his reign on full display, a rule of information, solid teaching, great biblical truth, a rule of healing, miracle working, loving God above all and loving everyone around him to the point of sheer exhaustion. He put his kingly rule on reign among his own people and they rejected him. And so what's written about Jesus is in one sense the the crime against him. It's also just the bare bones truth. This is Jesus of Nazareth. You know his mom. He's got no earthly father conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's the king of the Jews. And because he's the king of the Jews, you are killing him according to God's plan. So there's the scene of crucifixion. And this scene really upset the Jewish leaders. Why? They didn't want a crucified king. They didn't want a king that was associated with crucifixion. They didn't want Jesus as their king. They don't like this whole thing at all. So Pilate's getting in a few barbs here. Oh yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they come to Pilate and say, verse 21, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate is just, he's had enough. You know what, what I've written, I've written. It sounds like something Jesus would say. It's written. And unannounced to Pilate, but the reader knows that it is written. And it's so true. And it's scriptural that Jesus is the king of the Jews. You have just this ordinary course of crucifixion, but you've got all these ironies that stand out as, uh, as John writes uh, this. Now, I want to I wanna walk through this and look at a few things as we kind of bring this home. And the first thing I want to highlight here is how scandalous the cross is. It, it's a scandal. Walter Bauer said it this way, the enemies of Christianity always referred to the disgracefulness of the death of Jesus with great emphasis and malicious pleasure. A God or son of God dying on the cross, that was enough to put an end to the new religion. You just don't start a religion where your king is being crucified. You don't do that in the Roman world in the first century. Your religion is going to die. But if it doesn't, and if the preaching of Christ crucified, which is what Paul and the apostles did as they went around, actually spreads Christianity throughout the whole known world, then what's going on? Ah, there is a king that really was crucified, and he's the ruler of the world. And his crucifixion is what was necessary in order to build his kingdom. That's the backstory. But the enemies of the cross, they look at this and say, nah, there's nothing in there for me. Every believer looks at that because we've been regenerated and we say there's everything in that for me. I need this scandalous thing to be done. I need Jesus to be there on that cross. Second thing I want us to just think about is God will accomplish his purposes no matter what. And he will use every person in this world to accomplish his purposes, including kings and rulers and those who look like they're ultimately in charge. It was the plan of the chief priests and rulers to kill Jesus quietly. We've noticed that. They didn't want to do this at a feast so that they could remove his influence and resume their powerful positions. Jesus was pulling disciples away from them. He was gaining a lot of traction and fame. They didn't like it. So they're trying to get away with Jesus quietly 
so that he can just be off the map and they can press on as normal. But it was God's predetermined plan to use lawless hands to get Jesus crucified at the biggest feast of all, right outside the city gates of Jerusalem for all the celebrants to see. Talk about spreading the gospel. Talk about announcing good news. Think about this. John 19, verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, Passover. Hundreds of thousands of Jews swelling Jerusalem's population. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. Aramaic, the language of the Jews. Latin, the language of uh, Roman law and jurisprudence. Greek, the language of the people. Just the lingua franca, what people spoke. There was not a single person that could walk by this and not be allowed to understand and read. Oh, there's Jesus. He's of Nazareth. He's the king of the Jews. The religious leaders, this was the last thing on their mind. And what did they end up doing? under God's predetermined plan, according to what he had decreed. You're actually going to crucify my son in about the most populated place that you could ever come up with at the Passover feast right outside Jerusalem. And there's going to be tons and tons and tons of Jews that read this. And indeed, they read it. This would be like Jesus being crucified right in front of Walmart along Washington Street at Tulip Time in Pella, when all the leaders are trying to do this, like in the cold, dreary second week of January at 10 below when there's nobody around. God does this, beloved, for the sake of the glory of his great name. Acts 4, 27, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Tremendous what took place here. And since we have such a great Savior then, the next thing I want us to consider, we ought to be people of the cross. Christians always have been. Hebrews 13, 13, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And maybe some of us might be asking, what does it look like to bear the reproach he endured? We're, we're told to bear the reproach. What does it look like? In verse 15 of that same chapter, he actually walks into it. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Oh, what is it to bear the reproach of Christ? To associate with him, acknowledge we belong to him, to own that we are his that our king's a crucified king. Resurrected, oh yeah. Ascended on high, to be sure. But crucified, that's our king. Well, that'll bring reproach, beloved. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? The author of Hebrews saying, you wanna bear this reproach, here's how we do it. We, we do our good works, we serve, and we also uh, acknowledge that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. There'll be a lot of reproach that comes with that. People saying, what do you need him for? Didn't he die on a cross? Why is he so great? How is he any different than Muhammad? How is he any different than other prophets, than Joseph Smith? What's so great about this one? There's reproach that comes along with it as we acknowledge that we belong to him.
And then J.C. Ryle, last quote from him, talked about something that I think is helpful because we probably already acknowledge that we're a people of the cross. Maybe we have cross jewelry, that's great. Maybe a lot of churches actually in Europe were designed in the shape of a cross. Main sanctuary is the vertical piece, the long piece, then you have wings on each side. If you look at it from the top in the sky, it was the shape of a cross. We have crosses on our buildings, crosses everywhere. And J.C. Ryle in his day says, like our master, we must be content to go forth outside the camp bearing his reproach. We must come out from the world and be separate and be willing if need be to stand alone. Like our master, we must be willing to take up our cross daily and to be persecuted both for our doctrine and our practice. Well, would it be for the church if there was more of the true cross to be seen among Christians, to wear material crosses as an ornament, to take to place material crosses on churches and tombs, all this is cheap and easy work and entails no trouble. But to have Christ's cross in our hearts, to carry Christ's cross in our daily walk, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to be made conformable to his death, to have crucified affections and live crucified lives, all this needs self-denial. And Christians of this stamp are few and far between. Yet this, we may be sure, is the only cross-bearing and cross-carrying that does good in the world. The times require less of the cross outwardly and more of the cross within. Something to think about. We are people of the cross. We're Christians. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Soon we're going to have resurrection glory. But here and now we have the cross. We pick up our cross, we deny ourselves, and we follow Jesus. If we love Jesus for what he has done for us on the cross and as born-again Christians, we do, and we will. What does that mean for us as his people? Now is the time we bear the cross. What's that going to look like? Pain and suffering on account of following Jesus. That's what it will look like. Well, is there one mold that it will look like? Nope. There's a lot of different forms this will take in each of our lives. Are we willing to pick up those crosses and bear them faithfully, obediently? Here's joyfully. Did Jesus Christ go to the cross begrudgingly? No, it was, it was his bread. It fed him to do his father's will in this way. So we're to be a people who pick up the crosses and count it the greatest privilege in the world. What other, what other greater privilege would there be? Would it be an amazing thing to be a Muslim and to go down that road, would that be tremendously joyful, knowing the end? Would it be amazing and awesome and joyful to be an atheist or an agnostic? Love it. imagine the privilege of what it is to be a child of God. And for 70 or 80 years, we just have to bear this cross, undergo the pain and the shame and the suffering of following Jesus in this life. And afterwards, time will just, we won't even have to keep track of time. That makes Bearing the cross in the here and now looks look, look, look trite. It's not nothing. Pain is real. You'll feel it, and it'll be difficult. Self-denial is not easy. It's not cheap. But compare that with what's to come. Compare the cross that Jesus underwent for us, capital C, and it puts what we undergo in different perspective. And finally, A.W. Pink said this. I'm going to close with this. Why did God permit his beloved to be so outrageously treated, to show us the place which his son had taken. It was the place which was due us because of our sins, the place of shame, condemnation, and punishment.
So this is where I want to just close here briefly and kind of drive this into our hearts. When we look at Jesus crucified, indeed, it was something he underwent. It was physically painful. All of that is true. And if we get rid of his physical pain and torment, we can't really make sense of Philippians 2.8 or even Hebrews 12.2, which uses Jesus' pain to talk about our pain and what we'll have to go through in humility and shame. So it was real. What I don't want us doing is leaving here thinking, oh, no, I've got to go out into this world and uh, shed this tear for Jesus, and that's the best response I can offer. No, we go out into the world and we do what? We say, what a Savior. How ugly, how grotesque, how horrible was that cross? What did he look like? Isaiah tells us men hid their faces from him. Why? It's just so ugly. Nobody wants to look at this. I doubt any mothers were turning their children's head to look at that. Horrible stuff. What do we take away from it? Beloved, that's what you and I look like in our sin. That's what we look like before a perfectly holy, righteous law and perfectly holy, righteous God in comparison. We in our sin are that ugly. Our pride, our rebellion, our wickedness, everything about us is that ugly. And if we really saw ourselves by nature for what we were, we would turn our faces away from our own image. And there sits Jesus doing what? Looking as ugly as we really are, undergoing all the shame we should have undergone, all the punishment we should have gone, so that you and I will never have to undergo it. We'll never see it. We will never be crucified, condemned by God because Jesus was for us. Now, every one of us would leave here doing what? Singing, what a savior. This is unbelievable. Why would God do this for me? Why would he put his only begotten son into that place for me? That's love. That's God's love, which is inexplicable. Where did he get this from? He's God. Just amazing. I hope your heart can marvel. I hope we can spend the rest of our life marveling that God would come up with this plan and Jesus would come and do it so that we could become God's children free. Let's pray.